have some claims, just stay quiet and you'll be okay. We are turning to the airport. That we can't breathe? I don't know. I think we're getting hijacked. All of this was brought upon us in a single day, and night fell on a different world, a world where freedom itself is under attack. We cannot let this evil continue. We must define the nature and scope of this struggle, or else it will define us. Thanks for listening to the eighth and last episode of this special series of WarPod, Reckoning with 9-11, with support from Friedrich Ebert Stiftung. Looking back 20 years on at the impacts of 9-11 across the world, Episode 7 looked at the implications of 9-11 for laws, freedoms, and ideals of Western countries. This eighth episode asks whether the 9-11 paradigm is here to stay, or the world is now ready to move on. The war on terror triggered by 9-11 was launched in search of security from the threat posed by groups like Al-Qaeda in pursuit of justice and retribution, and in hopes of defending and expanding freedom around the world. It's a war that's touched over 85 countries. It's seen the invasion of Iraq, Afghanistan and Somalia, huge volumes of military support, partnered operations, drone and aerial warfare, covert operations, stabilisation programmes, also multilateral peace operations and programmes to try and win hearts and minds of the population through CVE and through development. And alongside all that, at home and globally, surveillance, detention, rendition, torture, other abuses, profiling of targeted populations, in particular Muslims and immigrants, with diminishing legal, judicial and political checks and balances. This has become the 9-11 paradigm for securing the world. But... As we've heard from a wide range of leading experts, this paradigm has brought a lot of problems as well in its wake. First of all, a policy panic, making terrorism an all-encompassing priority, but then neglecting the very real reasons underpinning all the violence, most notably state violence and repressive, corrupt rule by authoritarian governments. This has been a recipe for escalating and spreading wars that it has proven very hard to end. Yes, and I mean, we can't count every death that has occurred in the course of the war on terror. In some places like Somalia, they've been hard to count. But we know that the post 9-11 wars have resulted in at least 925,000 deaths, at least 360,000 of these, over 100 times the number of people killed on 9-11 itself, have been civilians caught in the crossfire of the war on terror. 38 million people around the world have been displaced. And in spite of, or maybe because of all this violence, violent movements have survived and they have spread, they have grown. As American analyst Bruce Hoffman recently noted, there are four times as many groups today designated by the State Department as terrorist organizations than there were on 9-11. So we're seeing again and again that these groups rarely get ended on the battlefield. Alongside this, as we saw in Afghanistan, in Iraq, in Yemen, in Egypt, in the Philippines in this series, there's been this quiet but abject failure to support people and civil society organisations who want peace, democracy and freedom, except for those who want to join in the war on terror by amplifying its messages and acting as its eyes and ears. And underneath all of this, you have the militarization of politics and society that underpins and sustains heavily armed strategies. 
which have drained enormous resources while ultimately recycling violence, rebellion, repression. So what's staggering is that with all these elements of strategic failure, as instability worsens and the threat from violent transnational movements persists, the politics of counterterrorism or policy panic, to use the phrase we've heard, remains so powerful. All politicians know that if they take responsibility for calling a halt to the war on terror or reimagining it, they could be toast when the next attack comes. So cost-benefit analysis and a true reckoning with 9-11 has gone out the window. We really saw that amid the US withdrawal from Afghanistan, a lot of voices were saying that NATO militaries should have fought harder. They should have fought more sincerely, trained their counterparts better or stayed longer, or blaming the Biden administration for a failure whose details might have been managed much more differently, but whose ultimate course, as we heard in episode two, was surely set a long time ago. An example of this has been General H.R. McMaster, who has more or less called for the U.S. to reinvade Afghanistan. I think it's time to reverse course, to recognize that we have put ourselves and the world at a much higher degree of danger by giving a country to the Taliban and allowing them to reestablish the Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan. And it's striking, of course, that so much of what went wrong in Afghanistan echoes the failures of Vietnam a generation earlier, and as Delina knows better than I do, is being mirrored again in the fresh mistakes Western governments are making today, right now in the Sahel, which the media is reliably touting as the latest front line against global jihad, but where insecurity and repression has been getting worse and worse since counter-terror interventions and train and equip operations began in 2012. Despite all this, on the 20th anniversary of 9-11, President George Bush continued to assure veterans that The cause you pursued at the call of duty is the noblest America has to offer. You have shielded your fellow citizens from danger. You have defended the beliefs of your country and advanced the rights of the downtrodden. You have been the face of hope and mercy in dark places. You have been a force for good in the world. So 20 years in, this episode asks whether we are ready to learn lessons from 20 years of war and terror and whether there are ways to move on from the 9-11 paradigm. Joining us to discuss this are Rosa Brooks, who is Scott K. Ginsburg, Professor of Law and Policy at Georgetown University and also author of the book, How Everything Became War and the Military Became Everything. Finulani Orlin, who is law professor at both Queen's University in Belfast and the University of Minnesota, where she directs the Human Rights Center and also is the UN Special Rapporteur on the Promotion and Protection of Human Rights and Fundamental Freedoms while countering extremism. How do you do it, Finula? And Tom Parker, who is former British Security Service MI5, counter-terror officer and the author of Avoiding the Terrorist Trap, Why Respect for Human Rights is the Key to Defeating Terrorism. So starting with you, Tom, before we consider whether we can move on from the 9-11 paradigm, first, Let's check ourselves a little. The series has been critical on the strategic failings and the ethical shortcomings of the post-9-11 war on terror. Are there elements of success or things that have worked that we are in danger of overlooking if we want to be balanced about the war's impacts? Yeah, actually, I think there is. There is a bit of a false dichotomy in the security world that one has to choose between strong security and, and effective human rights observance. And the reality, and I think one of the great lessons from the last 20 years, is that law enforcement and security agencies have actually enjoyed 
tremendous success when they've stayed, stayed well within the human rights framework. Because what people tend to miss is that international human rights law is actually really quite remarkably permissive in many respects in what it allows states to do. States have a remarkable latitude to use a whole range of investigative tools from uh, eavesdropping devices, surveillance tools, uh, undercover officers, uh, recruited uh, assets, human sources, in pursuit of, of, of their investigations. And essentially, you know, they're really only limited in international human rights law by the extent to which the, the tools that they used are defined in law, that they observe due process in the way that they use them, and that they use them in a manner that is reasonable, necessary, and proportional to the threat that they're trying to counter. And when states have stayed within that rubric, they've been pretty effective. I mean, you could look at the, you know, the, the, the large number of successful prosecutions in the federal court system in the United States uh, for terrorism offenses, and then set that against the very slow progress of the military commissions in, in Guantanamo, Cuba. The federal courts have actually dealt quite successfully with terrorism cases brought before them using the laws that were in effect, for the most part, before 9-11 they've proved to be an adequate tool to meet this threat. Um, the same is true for intelligence and, and, and law enforcement agencies that have responded to terrorism within this rubric. We heard just last month the Director General of MI5, Ken McCullum, talking about how the security service, at working with you know, the British police, had actually prevented 31 late-stage terrorist attacks in the last four years. So I think one of the missing parts of the story about what has happened since 9-11 is how successful many international, many um, Western and, and uh, North American security agencies have been uh, responding to terrorism actually when they've stayed within that human rights framework. Thanks very much, Tom. So that gives us a sense of some of the reasons why we might not be able to move straightforwardly on from the war on terror paradigm is that obviously the threat from terror attacks is real and it needs to be, can be effectively policed. And despite everything that clearly has gone wrong, you can't drop your guard on this. So things could easily get worse if you do. But that's linked in a way to what you've called in some of your writing, the terrorist trap, Tom, as you've written, provoking an overreaction is terrorism 101. So if you look at how democracies have reacted to terror tactics, and will react maybe to the next 9-11. It seems likely that we could easily go right back to where we started on, on the 12th of September 2001. Is, is that how you see it? Well, that, that is the historical pattern. Terrorism has been around for about 150 years. And if you go back and look at every historical iteration, more or less on every continent, you'll see that, that terrorists have always pursued their goals within the same basic doctrine. Um, one aspect of that doctrine is, is provoking an overreaction, and they do that for a variety of reasons, uh, one of which is to polarize society, another of which is, to, is to, to sort of have the government drive their constituents kind of into their arms uh, because they've been alienated by the state security response. And, and this has been a, a very uh, openly avowed tactic for terrorist organizations um, down through, as I say, the last 150 years, here, most recently, um, ISIS called it the elimination of the grey zone, but you'll find it in terrorist writings, uh, whether you're talking about uh, Islamist extremism, left-wing terrorism in the 60s, 70s and 80s, uh, anarchist terrorism for that matter in the late 19th century. I mean, it's always been part of the terrorist toolkit. 
And states have fallen for it pretty much every single time. There's a, a, an excellent academic called Louise Richardson who's done a, wrote a fantastic book about terrorism called What Terrorists Want. And, and she talked about the pathology of state overreaction. And that, that phrase actually was an inspiration for a lot of my work because I, I started off from the perspective of, is she right? Do states always overreact? And, you know, after seven years of writing that book, I couldn't come up with any example, any meaningful example where a state had not overreacted to the threat posed by an emerging terrorist group. And, you know, I, I don't think we should ever underestimate the impact that terrorist attacks have on a civilian population. Like terrorism is very much a, you know, a democratic affliction. And that's partly because democratic governments have to respond to their publics. And when the publics are scared and angry, they demand action. And you get a lot of what's often called security theater as a result. But you also, on top of that, get a lot of very bad panicked policymaking. And that's, I think, what we saw after 9-11. It's also what we saw in Northern Ireland in the uh, uh, the first years after the, the outbreak of the Troubles. Um, people often see, uh, I think, falsely and um, somewhat naively, uh, security in, in a tough response. Oftentimes, not oftentimes, pretty much every single time, that just makes things worse. And we know that uh, human rights abuses are a major, if not the major driver of terrorism and why people join terrorist organizations. So this is a, this is a real problem for democracies. It's very hard to respond to the threat of terrorism in a, in a nuanced and um, calm manner. And uh, of course, the terrorists are theatrically doing everything they can to provoke you not to respond that way and to put you under pressure from your own people to respond more, more publicly, more aggressively. Uh, and that's a very difficult pressure for a government to resist. Thank you, Tom. So another thing which makes the 9-11 paradigm hard to shift is this sheer level of globalization and the embeddedness of the 9-11 agenda. Fionula, we've heard at times in the series about the resolutions that were passed at the UN after 9-11. Um, we've heard about the UN's embrace of preventing violent extremism and about the legal changes across G20 countries, um, but also about the authoritarian's embrace of counterterrorism. Um, and within Safer World, we've also published a report focusing on the Global Counterterrorism Forum. Can you take us further here? Would it be fair to say that the 9-11 paradigm has really entered the bloodstream of international relations and multilateral institutions in today's world. So I think it's fair to say that the post 9-11 landscape has profoundly altered and been profoundly changed by counterterrorism. And that's happening on a number of levels. The first of those levels is institutional. As we've said, we've seen the rise of an extraordinary architecture of counterterrorism within the United Nations. That includes the establishment of an Office of Counterterrorism, uh, United Nations Counterterrorism Committee. It includes a special political mission, uh, UN CTED, that services the Security Council. The entrenchment of these institutions and the scope of their work has shifted, and I think, in my view, negatively shifted some of the core priorities set out in the UN Charter, and those need to be reclaimed. In addition, we've had normative shifts, not only these Security Council resolutions that I've called the super legislative resolutions, but really a reordering of the kind of regulatory work that the Security Council does by essentially regulating in the area of domestic criminal law, which in my view has been 
uh, ill-conceived and certainly not advanced security on the ground in many national settings. On top of that, we've seen the emergence of new informalism, new institutions in counterterrorism, from the Global Counterterrorism Forum through to the FATF, the Financial Action Task Force. New and powerful institutions that often do work unseen and out of sight, but again, shift the regulatory landscape in profound ways. These are human rights light and civil society free spaces. They are regional, they are national, they are international. And one of the things that we need to do in the next 20 years is to undo these new assemblages, recognize in some ways the threat they pose to the international order and understand the threat they pose to the international order and the need to reimagine these spaces that places the human security of the people most affected by violence at the heart of what we do. Thanks, Vanilla. So another challenge with moving on from the 9-11 paradigm is, as we've heard, even as there seems to be much support in the US for ending forever wars, the 9-11 paradigm in some ways has spread internationally way beyond its source. Now, on this series, we've also sort of tried to offer a global view of the war on terror but one that's not shy about looking at political economy analysis. But we have been remiss on one major issue. We really haven't touched at all on the economics underpinning the war on terror. So here, profit motives have quietly underpinned many of the war on terror's biggest decisions, the investments, the strategic partnerships. The economic investments, in fact, have been extraordinary. So the Costs of War project at Brown University states that by the end of 2022, the US will have spent $8 trillion on post-9-11 wars, and that of $14 trillion in Pentagon spending since the US went into Afghanistan, between a third and a half of that went to defence contractors. So whatever results they're bringing, such huge investments are likely to continue, and jobs and profits for powerful individuals depend on them. And it's all taking place within a climate, at least in the US, of very strong support for everything military across the media, across the political spectrum, something Spencer Ackerman, a guest on the last episode, has referred to as uniform worship. So Rosa Brooks, your book makes the claim that after 9-11 in the US, everything became war and the military became everything. Do you still feel that's the case? And does that mean the post 9-11 paradigm is going to be hard to shift? You know, I think the Biden administration is trying to shift it, but what I don't know is whether they will succeed. I think that the military worship you referred to has faded a little bit, uh, in part because we at, in the United States have seen that many of our military investments, many of our, our conflicts haven't achieved the strategic results that they were intended to have. Uh, I, I think it could come back, uh, but right now I think it's it's at a low ebb. Um, and whether that will endure will depend very much on what, what happens in the next couple of years. Um, but I, I do think I, I want to go back to something that both you noted and that that in many ways Fanula was commenting on, which is the, the proliferation of organizations, uh, both private sector and public sector, uh, that are created to address counterterrorism in one way or another. Those defense contractors here in the United States uh, but also the many, many governmental organizations within the military, within the intelligence community in the U.S., within the, our State Department, 
uh, within our uh, international development programs that after 9-11, the United States government's architecture, the executive branch architecture, really shifted to focus on counterterrorism and entire new organizations were created. Those organizations are full of people, uh, just as all the defense contractors that spring up to meet the needs that the government can't meet uh, are full of people. And, you know, to quote the uh, line attributed to Oscar Wilde, the bureaucracy expands to meet the expanding needs of the bureaucracy. It's not a giant conspiracy, but it does mean that you have all these people who spent their careers learning how, or at least they, they hope they were learning how to do essentially one thing. And even if that one thing is no longer or should no longer be a national or a global priority, that's what they know how to do. And this is path dependence at its finest. They'll keep doing it. Uh, unless it, it takes a whole lot to stop stop that machine once it gets up and running. Thank you, Rosa. So from all three of you to varying degrees, we've heard troubling perspectives about how the politics and economics of the US and other Western countries, and also the embeddedness of these approaches across a world that is autocratizing, suggest that 9-11 paradigm, although it may evolve, will be very hard to move beyond. I want to I wanna stay with you, Rosa, and ask what gives you hope, whether you see reasons to feel that a better approach to the politics of security may be possible. And if you do, what might that look like? <laughs> I do, but I also see continued reason for gloom. So, so let me, let me, talk about both. Um, you know, first, just to continue the doom and gloom for one moment, if I may, I, I think in some ways the most troubling legacy of the 20 years after 9-11, the war on terror in the United States, has been the ways in which counter in which practices that were developed to fight terrorism in that sort of panicky post-9-11 moment have really not not just from the perspective of, of organizations, but from the perspective of policy and legal doctrines have kind of filtered down and are relatively invisible, but are very much still with us. And those those range from uh, things like drone strikes and other forms of targeted killing, which still are done without much transparency and with very little accountability. All the accountability mechanisms, uh, which are frankly pretty minimal, are within the executive branch. Um, we still have that. Uh, and indeed, the Biden administration's turn away from forever wars was fairly explicitly done uh, by saying we are not going to have hundreds of thousands of troops on the ground, but we are going to increase our targeted counterterrorism strikes, which when done without without transparency and accountability can be pretty devastating for the rule of law. And I think that that is staying with us. We've also seen that trickle down even into ordinary U.S. courtrooms that are very far removed from counterterrorism uh, in many ways, uh, even in ordinary criminal law litigation or civil litigation by private citizens, where doctrines such as the state secret doctrines and increasing reliance on uh, in-camera hearings or non-public hearings where one party or, or, or the general public can't be present, we've seen that expand far, far away from where it originally began and far, far removed from the original purposes that it began with. So all of those things, I think, are, they're invisible, which makes it harder to combat because for the average American, you'll never notice them. But it's a really big shift and it's really weakened the rule of law in the US, I think, since 9-11. Uh, I know you asked me to talk about the reasons for hope, 
Um, I do think that number one for the United States, uh, the past 20 years have been a lesson in, in humility, which is not such a bad thing. Uh, and to the extent that the takeaway from that for the US is it is possible to waste $14 trillion and achieve remarkably little for that. And maybe we should be a little bit less quick to imagine that we can throw money or throw troops at a problem and solve it. So I think, I think that that has remained and that's a good thing. Um, and the other, the other thing I think that has changed, and this goes back to something that Tom said earlier, I think we have realized much more, uh, not entirely, but much more, the degree to which counterterrorism has much more in common with law enforcement and the work of detectives than it does with the military. Uh, that those plots in the UK that were thwarted, essentially they were thwarted by what, what amounts to good detective work, not by sending a battalion somewhere. Uh, and I think that's been true in the United States as well, that, that terrorism does remain a problem. It's not an existential problem. And it's a problem that we're not going to be able to address through war. We're going to have to address it sort of the, the slow, meticulous, old fashioned way, but that can often be extremely effective. Thank you, Rosa. So clearly, it's not going to be easy, but there are reasons to believe some of the lessons of the last 20 years may be sinking in. And, and from that, you can build. Let's bring Tom in on this question. I mean, Tom, we know you think there's a way to avoid the terrorist trap, as you've put it, because you've written a book about it. So do you agree with Rosa that there are ways forward? And what for you would a viable alternative to the 9-11 paradigm actually look like? I'm actually in 100% agreement with Rosa. I do think the law enforcement paradigm is the most appropriate response to terrorism. And I think you see a very interesting difference in the way that the United States, for example, has responded to the threat from right-wing terrorism in quite a measured manner using law enforcement tools. And that's a stark contrast to the way it responded to the threat of Islamist terrorism. And one can unpack that and one could look at how easy it is to demonize the other and, and um, you know how much more complicated it is it is to deal with a very large segment of your own society, but I, I think we do see some hope in that. I think what's thing that's very very clear, and again as Rosa articulated so well, is that you know we've learned the hard way that you know you can't do terrorism from ten thousand feet, you can't kill your way to victory, and that actually the old tools, the slow incremental methodical tools, work pretty well. And again, you know, you, you contrast the military commissions to the courts, you contrast, you know, the effective investigations to some of the expeditionary uh, sort of special forces counterterrorism, and the results that one gets from the law enforcement approach stacks up pretty well. I do think that there are sometimes challenges that do sometimes lie out with law enforcement that are very, very difficult for states to respond to. Um, you know, I think a good case in that is, is someone like Anwar Awalaki. Um, the uh, al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula propagandist and, and leader who was one of the first uh, U.S. citizens killed by a U.S. drone strike uh, in Yemen. Um, you know, there, there weren't many other ways for the United States to, to reach him. Uh, certainly, law enforcement wasn't a tool that was going to work in Yemen. And, and he was actively involved in, in encouraging people to carry out terrorist attacks inside the United States. That does pose a tremendously difficult problem for states um, trying to keep their citizens safe. But those are very, very exceptional circumstances. And you know, the vast majority of cases that we see, particularly within the domestic context, law enforcement tools, you know, the human rights framework, it gives you all the latitude you need to, to, to respond effectively. And I would say there's a sense in which 
you know, law enforcement investigators are human rights defenders, particularly in the counterterrorism sphere, right? What are they doing? They're protecting their citizens. They're protecting their citizens' right to life, their right to freedom of assembly, their right to freedom you know, of belief and opinion. And if we can help people in the security establishment slightly reorient their thinking, um, you know, we've talked a lot in the security community about the resilience of infrastructure and the resilience of critical systems. But we haven't spent really any time at all talking about the importance of the resilience of values. And that's a conversation that I would like to see us having more and more. And I think Rose is right. The failures in Afghanistan and Iraq, and sadly, that's what they are, they have created the space to have a more critical conversation about what works and doesn't work. And, and I'm hoping that will lead people back to understanding the tools that are most effective. And those are the good old-fashioned tools that have worked quite well. But they're incremental and they're slow, and they require people to work with patience and, and dedication over a long period of time. If we return to those tools, I think we'll, we'll enjoy greater success. Thank you, Tom. And also thank you for mentioning something that is an exception and is often treated as the rule. I want to turn to you now, Fionula. If we want to build a world that no longer needs the 9-11 paradigm, what do you think it should look like and how can we get there? I think we start by like there are a number of almost simultaneous questions you have to hold in the same space. And the first is the question of does any of this work? I, I have been like Tom enormously challenged by the ways in which we fail in counterterrorism, whether it's nationally or globally in this global architecture, to do almost any monitoring and evaluation, to have any data points on whether or not these enormous amounts of um, both structure, norm, and spending actually result in safer and more secure societies. So I'm also a really big believer in how would it look different? Well, it would look different if we evaluated in a systematic and scientific way, as we do in many other areas of governmental policy and international practice, whether it works or not. And I think it's interesting to see that the last global counterterrorism strategy negotiated in the spring this year finally starts to acknowledge the role of monitoring and evaluation in counterterrorism. The second thing we need to do is to fundamentally prune this architecture. It is too big, it is unwieldy, and we need something better than what we have. And the third thing we need to do is we need to certainly bring in civil society um, into this conversation in a way we haven't done so far. Changing who are the decision makers, who's making, who's making the calls. And another key part of this is reframing who are the key stakeholders to bring us to successful security and safe and holistic security. And at the heart of that is ensuring that civil society are part of the conversation about security, that the people who are most affected by security are the ones who are at the table defining what security means and the kinds of methods and means of addressing security in their communities is not a top-down, but a bottom-up conversation. So when we put all this together, we need three things. We need significant monitoring and evaluation and asking the hard questions if any of this works and then directing policy to follow from that. We need a significantly pruned counterterrorism architecture 
And we need the engagement of civil society and those who are the stakeholders, the fundamental and key stakeholders to producing better security policy as an integral part of these conversations. Thanks so much to all our guests, Tom, Rosa and Fanula, for um, sharing those insights with us. Reckoning with 9-11. So we've reached the end of the series. It's time to wrap up and draw conclusions. There are many reasons to fear that in spite of the track record of the war on terror, the 9-11 paradigm could be with us for some time to come. Yeah, and, and for one thing, other factors like COVID, for example, have added to the infringements on civil liberties and rights around the world. Then we have the economics, how the war on terror, enormous military spending, defence contracts, arms sales, they all remain big business for elites who are close to government in turbulent economic times when jobs are very important to people. Yeah, and, and another challenge is that although it's easy to see how all the options tried in the war on terror have either failed or made the situation worse, it isn't very clear how we can address terror threats and instability or get governments around the world to start treating their people better. Although our guests today have given us some good pointers and ideas, like the Global Fragility Act, which suggests growing openness to new approaches, there are no silver bullets to tackling the post 9-11 era. Yeah, and I mean, for me, the biggest problem of all is in this space between political leaders, the media and the public, where the terror threat gets inflated, politicians act tough to gain power, and there's simply no accountability that's functioning at the moment for the abject failure of bad approaches to the war on terror. And I mean, I think this is an area where politicians have some responsibility to be more courageous, explaining that the war on terror will never be completely won, terrorism will never be completely eliminated, and anyone who says otherwise is lying. But the threat can be minimised by adopting a more proportional strategy that actually makes sense. And to be effective, the strategy, I suppose, would surely have to be largely non-military, would have to involve law enforcement approaches that respect rather than undermine human rights, as we've heard today, but all along the series, and also start taking seriously the idea that if you want a safe world, you need to start with promoting the safety and well-being of people in conflict settings. Yeah, indeed. So if those are some of the big fears, what gives us hope that a different paradigm could come into being? One thing probably is that the younger generation seem much more vigilant about uh, and much more hostile to surveillance and opposed to inequality and racism than older folks. Yeah, and in a similar vein, politicians and manifesto writers take note of this, that for all the threat inflation and the uniform worship in our societies, Surveys by groups like Conciliation Resources and International Alert have shown that there's massive, unwavering public support for policies that support peace. And since Iraq, there's also this healthier scepticism about military interventionism, which has to be a good thing. All this means that politicians really could trust the public to get behind a different and a better strategy. And finally, a third thing is that if we can set aside partisanship for a moment, uh, a moment of sober reflection, the 9-11 paradigm for counterterrorism has failed so visibly, so dramatically on its own terms, so often in similar ways across different contexts, that at some point the penny has to drop 
And we will have to agree that for all of us, it can no longer be September 12th. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening. This special WarPod series, Reckoning with 9-11, was brought to you by Safer World, with support from Friedrich Ebert Stiftung. It was produced by The Podcast Company. Listen, follow, and share wherever you get your podcasts. And for more reflections from guests and co-hosts on the consequences of 9-11 and where we go from here, check out their articles at justsecurity.org, produced in cooperation with Safer World.